Seven parables that describe, illustrate, and explain the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. And each parable, Jesus told, builds upon each parable that came before it. And so these seven parables in a row, clearly, to those with ears to hear and eyes to see, describe certain truths about the kingdom of heaven. And on this day, massive crowds, they gathered to hear Jesus speak. So many people congregated on the shores of the sea that Jesus got into a boat and sat down while all of the crowd stood on the beach, eagerly hanging on every single one of his words. And on this day, however, as we have already learned, instead of clearly and directly instructing the crowds with clear and direct teaching, Jesus spoke to these crowds in parables. He spoke to them using stories and metaphors by which to set before them spiritual lessons. But those spiritual lessons can only be accessed by or understood by those with ears to hear and eyes to see, those who want to hear these things. He spoke to them in parables, seven of them in a row. And again, as we've covered in the, in the previous weeks, why did Jesus speak to them in parables? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, as he revealed in the uh, first little bit there of uh, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10 and forward, we learn that he spoke the parables to conceal, to conceal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from those who heard his clear and direct teaching, but hardened their hearts to it. And they harden their hearts to it either by rejecting it outright or by going even further and accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. To such as these, the parables of Jesus on this day constitute a divine judgment as the Lord takes from them, as he removes from their hearing the clear proclamation of the life-giving, soul-saving word of truth. And so these parables... To the hard-hearted, conceal the truth of the kingdom. But to those who have not closed their eyes and plugged their ears, the parables also serve for them to illustrate and describe the wonders of the kingdom, the wonders of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To all who are poor in spirit, to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, The parables broadcast the miraculous, astonishing works of God in the person of Jesus Christ. To all who recognize and see that the Lord is indeed gracious and merciful, that our Lord is slow to anger and He is abounding in steadfast love, that our God gathers in the outcasts, our God binds up and heals the brokenhearted, Our God lifts up the humble and shows compassion to every single man, woman, and child who calls out to Him by grace through faith in Jesus. To such as these, the parables loudly trumpet God's goodness to us in the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And as Jesus spoke in parables on this day, as he spoke in these seven parables and illustrated truths about the kingdom of heaven, one building on top of the other, one answering questions and clarifying things that might arise in the minds of the disciples who were listening to him, we see a number of truths revealed. Because as you go through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will speak in other parables, and sometimes they aren't directly about the kingdom of heaven. For example, Matthew 18, we read the parable of the unforgiving servant illustrating the necessity of forgiveness by those who claim to be forgiven. These seven parables, however, right before us, speak directly about the kingdom of heaven and set before you and I for our encouragement, for our comfort, for our exhortation, and for our warning the nature and the reality of the kingdom and describe a number of truths about the kingdom. Now, the first parable, as we, were, we looked at a few weeks ago, was the parable of the soils. And in the parable of the soils, back in Matthew 13, verses 1 to 9, we see Jesus describe or explain to the disciples and explain to all the crowds who are watching on this day the 
four different receptions that one can expect as they go out and they scatter the seed of the gospel in the world. Because as the disciples watched and listened to Jesus and his engagements with the crowd and his, the response that he was receiving from the religious leaders, as those who heard Jesus preached rejected him and accused him of being in league with Satan, the disciples on this day must have wondered, right? It must have come into their mind, how is it that Israel is rejecting right now the Messiah that she's been waiting for for centuries? He's here. How is it that they are not just turning to him in faith and bowing to him? So Jesus speaks to this idea. The Jewish idea that surely when Messiah came, all would see him, all would believe him. I mean, if you're a disciple standing there on this day, you can, you can appreciate the the emotion they might feel as they ask themselves, what, is this, what sort of foolishness is this? To have Messiah standing right here and you reject him. So Jesus answered this in a parable, saying the response of the to the gospel message will be fourfold. Some will be like soil on the path. The soil on the path is so hard it's so packed down that the seed of the gospel it will, be, will be sown on it, but the seed will just bounce up off that ground and be trampled on by passers-by or snatched up by hungry birds. Some will be like the soil with rocks in it that keep the roots from actually penetrating deep into the soil so that they might connect to the vine and draw life-giving water and sustenance from the vine. These will hear and receive the good news, but without having any real connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, without roots that draw the life-giving water from the Lord Jesus Christ. And for a time, they may even seem really joyful. They may seem really in it. And for a time, we might all think, yes, they are in it. They love the Lord. But when persecution or trial inevitably arises on account of one's profession of faith, the soil that is characterized by the rocks, these will fall away and depart from the profession they once professed. Still others, they will be like thorny soil. They'll hear the word. Perhaps they'll even believe in the intellectual things that are being told to them. Yes, I believe in this Jesus. But over time, they haven't really truly given themselves to Jesus. They still are deceived by the cares of the world and they're choked by the riches in this world and the deceitfulness in the world and eventually prove unfruitful and prove to be a false convert, not one who truly gave themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there will be, according to Jesus, good soil. And the good soil will hear the word. They'll understand the word. They'll appropriate the word. The word will penetrate their hearts. Their roots will go deep into the vine. And they will indeed bear good fruit in keeping with repentance and true faith. And so the disciples hear this. And, that in, and by this parable, Jesus is explaining what they are witnessing as the, as the Pharisees reject them and as the crowds reject him. And as they believe in him. But upon hearing this parable, the next question might arise. So then what ultimately becomes of the good soil? And what ultimately becomes of the thorny soil, the path, and the rocky soil? How can it be that Messiah has come and those who reject him to his face and say that he is satanic still draw breath? Because you see the Jews at this point expected immediate the Messiah, when he arrived, to immediately terminate all who refused to submit to him. They anticipated his destruction and casting aside of those who held Israel in subjection. They assumed that the arrival of Messiah meant the wiping out of the foreign nations that presently ruled over them as the Messiah ascended to the throne and ruled over Israel from his seat in Jerusalem. Now, while it is true that these events will indeed come to pass, the disciples misunderstood the timetable of these events. 
which Jesus clarified by the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus explained in the parable of the wheat and the weeds that there is indeed coming a day when the Lord will say, Enough! A day when the weeds will be gathered and bound into bundles and thrown into the fiery furnace to be burned. There is a day when the Lord will dispatch His angels who will come and sickle out from the field all lawbreakers and unrepentant sinners. And they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this place, the just wrath of a holy God will fall upon, will be poured out upon all who refused His offer of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the wheat, in contrast, the wheat representing believers, these will be gathered into the barn. Those who truly trust in and believe in Jesus will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, said Jesus. But all of this will take place when? At the end of the age. The Jews thought it would take place at the beginning. Jesus said, no, it's going to take place at the end. For now, as you live in this world, know this, the Lord permits the wheat and the weeds to grow up together in the same field. And this is a testament to the patience and long-suffering of our gracious God. It is a testament to the mercy of our God as He leaves time for all who would to come to repentance. But while the patience of the Lord permits the wicked to live right now, at this point in history, the text, the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.10 that there is coming a day. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus made it crystal clear The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it wins in the end. But as the disciples stand there on that beach and see crowds of people not flocking to saving faith in Messiah, as they hear their very own national religious leaders reject their Messiah, you can imagine them pondering that response, looking out at the world that they live in and wondering, how can that be? How will it come that this kingdom will advance to the degree that you are telling us it will advance, Lord? The deck seems so stacked against the advancement of the kingdom. The odds don't seem to be in its favor. At this moment, as Jesus spoke these parables, the kingdom was extremely small, consisting of Jesus and and 11 of his disciples. And not only that, but the king of the kingdom was a Nazarene. I don't know, you remember what the scripture tells us about Nazareth? The views of the people in that day towards Nazareth can be well summed up by Nathanael in John chapter 146, who when hearing that they had found the Messiah and that he was from Nazareth, they said this, he said this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see the humble beginnings And the citizens of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom was a Nazarene, and the citizens of the kingdom were 11 of the 12 uneducated disciples traveling around with Jesus. The 12th being Judas, who eventually betrayed Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, in turn, did everything in their power to see to it that they brought Roman crucifixion his way. Could the kingdom be any less significant than it was seemingly at this moment in time? A Nazarene walking with 12 disciples, one of whom wants to kill him. What they saw at that moment didn't really align with the great picture of the end times gathering into the furnace and into the barn that Jesus had been speaking about, did it? Could Will such a humble kingdom advance and spread to the degree that Jesus speaks of in the parable of the wheat and the weeds? Just how many righteous, Lord, will be gathered into your barn to shine like the sun in your kingdom? Because it seems on this day to be an exceedingly small and insignificant number. And then you come up to our own day. 
You look out at the world as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, and you might wonder also about the words of Jesus. We know the Lord is going to send out his angels into a field that is full of both wheat and weeds. But given what the disciples saw, is it really possible that this kingdom might come to pass? Is it really possible that such a kingdom can or will survive given the relentless onslaughts that will come against it by the weeds in the field? If the field that is the world is populated by so vast a number of evil, immoral, sinful people, what can become of the kingdom of heaven? What hope can there be for its success and its growth? as the world even now continues to bring forth enemies of the cross who both knowingly and unknowingly work to scatter and to destroy and to halt and to hinder the advancement of the kingdom by any number of methods. Can the kingdom continue to march forward? Some are going to work from the inside, imitating God's people, counterfeiting faith in Christ, and while doing so, do everything in their power to erode our trust in the Word of God. It's a consistent thing we see over and over and over, and some of the great pastors and leaders of our day continue to ring and sound the alarm against it. And I've seen it over and over and over myself. As these counterfeits come into the church and counterfeit faith and start trying to get people who truly do believe in Christ to look away from Scripture as authoritative. Who say things like, why hold to such backwards and culturally offensive ideas? Why not simply just let women preach and be elders? Why not ordain and celebrate pastors who agree with the sexual moors and and choices of this particular culture? Why not deconstruct your faith? Why not engage in conversations? And usually what that means is, well, let's just talk about how dumb this faith is. That's what they they try to do. Don't you know that the church that you that you so you invest yourself into is filled with a bunch of hypocrites? The answer to that question should for all of us be, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm one of them. Don't you know that the church is filled with people who are going to let you down? Yeah, I know. I'm one who've let who's let people down and have been let down, but that's okay. Don't you know that it would be so much more comfortable for you just not to go to church? I mean, look at what's going on in the world. Just stay home. It's much easier to just stay home and be comfortable. There's constant and unrelenting labors to hinder and destroy the work of God and the obedience of His peoples from the inside. Or we have people who labor from the inside to turn our eyes off Jesus and to look in trust at the princes of the world. Don't you know that if we got our guy in, that he will shape and form and mold the world the way we want it and everything will be okay? Everything is being done to erode our trust in God and His Word. Everything that can be done is being done to take our eyes off King Jesus, to have us look to other sources for deliverance, for other sources for redemption and salvation and truth. Any other place to look for truth other than the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing more than a deception. The consistent pressure from the inside to give up on the Great Commission, to minimize the instructions that have been given to us by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything He has commanded. You see, the wicked, led by such a formidable enemy as Satan, is consistently drawing its battle lines and marching in formation both inside the visible church and outside the visible church. And with such battle lines and formations drawn, how will the kingdom make it to the end of the age? But not only is it being attacked from the inside, but it's also being attacked from the outside. 
Not only must we contend with those who seek to destroy the work of God internally, but we must also contend with those who hope to crush and grind us to dust from the outside. If you just take a quick look at the state of the world, right? I read a few articles. I just opened up a few articles and and looked at them, and, and immediately you see it. See, pastors and congregants killed in Nigeria as though they were nothing more than cattle. You see, pastors and congregants mobbed and beaten as they are worshiping in India as 200 Hindus break, up, break in and, and, and hurt them, beat them and injure them. And they threaten to murder them if they continue meeting and gathering in their village. How can the kingdom keep advancing when the state police tear down churches and imprison Christians in China? How is the church advancing when in North Korea, if you're even suspected of being a Christian, you are thrown into a brutal concentration camp or simply outright executed in public? Or, closer to home, how is the kingdom advancing in our nation We ourselves now live in a nation that is codified into law, legislation that both condemns biblical truth and labels it as myth. Now, a number of us might say, this country was founded on Christian principles, right? If that's the case, it doesn't look like victory is happening, does it? As we move from that to where we are right now. And if that weren't enough, that same law that has been recently codified threatens the people of God with prison sentences, with hefty punitive fines, and criminal records, simply because we hold firm to proclaiming the truth of God's Word. We now live in a country where holding to and declaring the truth of Scripture, the very words of Jesus Himself, that in the beginning God created us male and female might initiate or lead to criminal proceedings against you. The recent passing of Bill C-4 without any dissension whatsoever enshrined these words into law, and I quote, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths, and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, end quote. Did you see it? The wording of this law consigns the teachings, the commands, the truth of our Savior Lord and Lord Jesus Christ into the realm of myth. But the truth, however, is, and you and I know it, contrary to what our civic leaders would have us believe, the truth of Jesus Christ is in direct opposition to the law of the land. Jesus spoke the truth. The words of Jesus are our firm foundation. The words of Jesus are right. They are accurate. They are always correct. Scripture's clear teaching about human sexuality is to be preferred over any lie or over any myth propagated by our world. Jesus has made it clear. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so one might wonder, how is it that the kingdom is advancing in our own culture when declaring the truth, for example, that a transgender woman is not a woman, but is indeed a man, or that a transgender man is not a man, but is indeed a woman, according to their biology, or, as Dr. John MacArthur recently stated, and I quote, there is no such thing as transgender. You are either double X or XY, and that's it. God made man male and female. That is determined genetically. That is physiology. That is science. That is reality. How is it that we've gotten to a place where to speak this truth of the Lord Jesus is now possibly met with the full weight of the law? Is the kingdom advancing when this is our reality? How can or how will the kingdom of heaven survive in the midst of such consistent and open hostility directed towards it by those outside the church and even by those who counterfeit faith inside of it? It's a heavy question, isn't it? 
don't worry, we're not going to end there. We have good news, everybody. Good news. According to Jesus, not only will the kingdom survive the assaults and the ambushes and the snares of the world, the snares set by the wicked, but the kingdom will absolutely thrive and advance and grow despite all efforts to oppose it. And there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that the world could do to stop or to stem its advancement. So realize this, brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, who looks out at a world where it seems like we are not winning. You are winning, and you do win in the end. Look at verse 31 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air will come and make nests in its branches. Again, as the disciples stand there on that day, they see the beginnings of the kingdom of heaven are small. But from there it has grown with unhalting advancement from that day to this, despite all the forces arrayed against it. The kingdom even now continues to exert influence in the world as it presses forward and as it knocks down the strongholds of Satan's domain. And though it might seem like the forces of evil have gained the upper hand in so many ways, they have not. The kingdom of heaven will continue to advance. The kingdom of heaven is right now advancing as people all over the world turn to Jesus Christ in faith, as people give their lives over to him in trust and become citizens of the kingdom. And the kingdom will continue to advance to the point that it will comprise such a multitude of citizens that it can be described by the Apostle John as... A great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so Jesus uses this parable right here, likening the advance of the kingdom to a mustard seed. A mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And this idea of a mustard seed is that it, is, it, dis, it was used in this day to describe something really, really, really small. This teeny tiny seed sown into the ground might not look like much, but it will turn into such a large tree that the birds of the air will come and make a nests in its branches. And this visual, this picture of a bird making nests in its branches is used throughout scripture to refer to peace and blessing and security. The birds will come to nest in the branches of the tree. And this speaks to the benefit of the kingdom's advance in the world. As people by grace through faith in Christ, or as people by faith in Christ become citizens of the kingdom, the world benefits in so many ways that it can't even begin to imagine. Sometimes you as the Christian are made to feel like you're the moron for being the Christian in the world. But the world doesn't understand the benefit and the value of your presence as a child of God in this world. One great blessing, as an example, is that because of you, because you are here, Christ's children are here, the Lord stays his hand of judgment against the nation for your sake. We saw it in Genesis 18, right? The Lord would not wipe out Sodom for the sake of ten righteous people. The unfailing advance of the kingdom of heaven is reiterated again in another parable. Verse 33, look at it. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, three measures of flour equals a lot of flour. And yet, it only takes a small amount of leaven put into that flour and worked all the way through to produce a fully leavened loaf or however many loaves three measures can make. 
And this parable speaks to the unseen permeation of the kingdom in the world. Again, we might not see it. As we look out into the world and we see what, see, what looks like the wicked gaining the upper hand, you and I need to know that the end result is and is working towards and will be a fully leavened, fully risen measure of flour. The kingdom of heaven will continue to leaven and permeate the entire batch. And at this moment, it is doing its work. It is working its way through the entire batch. And Jesus gives these parables to his disciples as to inspire confidence in them, to inspire confidence in you, you, citizen of the kingdom, you who truly trust in and love and believe and have bowed the knee to King Jesus, you, hopefully this brings you comfort as you live for him and as you serve him in this world. There are times when you can feel pressed down and you can feel like it's all just going wrong. But you win. The kingdom wins. Jesus wins, even if you can't see it. Don't be scared. Don't be anxious. Don't go running away. Live as a child of the Lord with full knowledge that the kingdom of heaven will overcome all resistance, all opposition from whatever quarter it arises. The kingdom will continue its advance. It will continue to permeate the world regardless of the weeds that have been sown in by the enemy to sabotage it. Despite everything the world does to hinder it, it does not matter if a nation outlaws faith in Christ. It does not matter if laws are enacted to persecute and prosecute believers. It doesn't matter if a country has committed itself to the execution of believers. It doesn't matter because the kingdom will keep on advancing. It's always permeating, always influencing, always battering down every obstacle in its path. No matter what the world does, you, child of God, citizen of the kingdom, you who love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to live for Him. Continue to obey Him. Come whatever may, you continue to shine the light and witness to, ki- witness to the King. You continue pointing people to Him. You continue exalting Him. You continue worshiping Him in constant confidence, and trust. The kingdom advances in the here and now as Christ currently rules over everyone who believes in Him, everyone who bows their knee to Him in faith. And if you would want to become a citizen of the kingdom this morning, to enter into the kingdom, you must call out to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You must turn to Him in faith repenting of your sin and submitting to him as Lord and King. And hear me, the benefits of this kingdom are first and foremost relationship with him. And the corresponding gifts that come with relationship to him. Eternal life, eternal life whereby we can enjoy him forever. And so at this particular moment, our Lord is reigning over his people from heaven, but he eventually will return bodily And the kingdom will take on the form of an earthly kingdom as Jesus rules and reigns over the nations of the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. And from there, all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms, will become his kingdoms, and he will reign forever and ever, according to Revelation 11. And after this, the new heavens and the new earth will be established. And Jesus will continue his reign on into eternity. This is the kingdom we look forward to. This is the kingdom Jesus taught us to pray for. This all-encompassing, never-ending kingdom ruled over by Jesus and populated by his people. And so if you are here and now looking for some earthly prince, some earthly king to establish some rule that you think will be great and perfect, it just doesn't happen. The perfect reign The great and delightful joy-bringing rule comes as Jesus takes the throne and rules over us for eternity. And it will arrive. The Lord has promised. The Lord has decreed. And it will be so. A citizen delighting for eternity in the only perfect king. You, delighting in him who fulfills your desire, which is true, 
perfect, everlasting joy. The only place that such a thing can be found is in Jesus Christ himself. So to become a citizen of this kingdom then, what would you give up? To become a citizen of this great, perfect, and glorious kingdom, how valuable is that? Well, according to the next parables, it's worth everything. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the crowds listening to Jesus on this day would have immediately understood this situation. You see, the land of Palestine had over the years suffered a number of revolutions, a number of changes in the governing powers, a number of upheavals as Assyria and then Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome all took turns booting each other out and taking ownership of the, of the land. The land endured the exile of the Israelites into far-off and distant provinces and territories under those foreign powers. And as a result, robbers and plunderers on constant lookout for ways to gain for self used this confusion and used this chaos in the region to rob, plunder, and carry off people's valuables, their gold, their silver, their precious stones. And in this day where there's no banks, where do you put your money? Where can you put it so that it is secure? The inhabitants of the land resorted to protecting their riches by burying those riches in the ground, in places known only to them. And Jewish historians record, under Roman rule, tremendous quantities of riches that had been unearthed throughout the region's the region this day, as people bought up fields and tilled those fields and found buried treasures, like legitimately. The Bible talks about buried treasure. There was so much, uh, even in other, other lands and in other regions, so much desire to find treasures that had been buried that it, it became proverbial. For example, Job, lamenting the day of his birth because of the calamity he was enduring in life, spoke of those who long for death, but it comes not, who long for death and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. And Solomon, in the Proverbs, he's counseling his son to seek wisdom, to value it. He says, seek it like silver and search for it as, hidden, as for hidden treasures. Now, the reason such a treasure would be in a field is because those perhaps who had buried the treasures throughout Palestine, had been taken off into exile, and they had never come back. For what reason? We don't know. It could have been they died of old age. It could have been they were killed. It could be that they decided to remain in their new lands or cities. And they left their valuables there, committed to the ground for safekeeping. Some of them weren't found. We still find them. They're still being unearthed today. Or, as in the parable, it might be that someone tilling a field happens upon or stumbles upon a treasure in that field as they are working. They come across some long-lost treasure hidden in the field that is of such immense value that they cover it up. Now, why would they cover it up? Because Roman and Jewish law dictated that such a find belonged to the owner of the property. And in this case... The tiller, or the one working the field, understood that the current owner of the field has no clue that it's there. No clue of the treasure's existence. It is clearly not his. It belongs to someone who left it there before. And so the man who found the treasure, he doesn't steal it. You can't steal it. He covers it back up, and in his joy, he goes to his home. He gathers everything up, and he sells it all. He sells everything to gain the treasure, to gain enough to purchase the treasure. And look, it says, in his joy, in his joy he went and sold everything he had, eagerly, with much haste. He's like, that, that treasure is unbelievably awesome. I'm joyfully willing to part with everything that will keep me from possessing it. The treasure in this parable is Christ. He is the treasure of such inestimable worth, of such incalculable value that those who find him, those who truly find him, 
with great delight, if called upon, will sell, give up, lay down, mortify, get rid of anything that might threaten or interfere with our laying hold of him. He is the supreme treasure. He is the true joy of our heart. He is the one for which those who truly see him would gladly and joyfully give up everything. When we see the king, when we truly grasp the person of Jesus Christ, then we grasp the tremendous value and the tremendous delight in entering the kingdom by calling out to him in faith. And doing whatever it takes to live as citizens of his kingdom. The disciples themselves had done so. Later on in the text, Matthew 19, 27, we see them saying to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. They so desperately wanted to be with the king that they left everything behind to follow him, to be with him, to live with him. And Jesus speaking of future citizens of you, of me, of our sons, our daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, said everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. For all who come to see and appreciate, for all who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who grasp the delights of a life that is submitted to his rule, That person will, as a result, concern themselves first and foremost with living for Christ and will joyfully let go or cut off anything they must to live that life without hindrance. This is what the Apostle Paul spoke about in his letter to the Philippians when he wrote these words, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you hear the pathos, the emotion, the passion of Paul in this text? Every earthly benefit. And now listen, Paul possessed many. He wrote this after giving a long list of his earthly benefits. Every gain that he had made in this world, when he compared it to the the surpassing worth of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, he considered it nothing more than rubbish. Nothing more than trash. Or as the word means, dung. Nothing more than dung. Paul, in essence, joyfully sold everything he had to buy the field. You also must be prepared and with great joy willing should your earthly rubbish take your eyes off the surpassing value, the supreme treasure that is Jesus Christ, be prepared to lay it down. In England, just recently... An anonymous person, they don't want to let their name known, was doing a little metal detecting in a local field and they ended up finding a rare Henry VIII gold penny in the ground. And the coin was minted in the year 1257. Oh man, that's awesome. 1257. And it pictures the seat, the king seated on a decorative throne and holding his scepter. And this coin is one of only eight known to exist. And the finder of the rare coin is in line for a, an estimated windfall of almost $600,000. Now, tell me about the joy, don't actually tell me, but you know, think about or consider the joy that you might have upon finding such a coin. Imagine the excitement. You'd be calling your friends, Guess what I found! And you'd be showing it to everybody, but not letting anyone hold it, Right? You know, as people are like, can I hold it? No. No. This is mine. It's mine. But this treasure, as great and as exciting as it is, 
according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, is less than nothing when compared to the surpassing worth of entrance into the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith in King Jesus. And Jesus continues on with the final parable in our text this morning, saying, and speaking of the exceptional value of the kingdom again, saying in verses 45 and 46, again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables together speak to the truth that there are a number of ways by which people might come to the kingdom, come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The treasure in the field, the the man stumbles upon it wasn't looking for it, he just happened upon it. Whereas here, you've got a merchant who is setting out in search of fine pearls. The idea being, there, is this, there are people who set themselves out to find and devote themselves to the finding of truth. Again, the kingdom of heaven in this context refers to the saving knowledge of God in Christ, repenting of sin and believing in Him and entering into the kingdom. And the kingdom, this kingdom is like, according to Jesus, a merchant who is searching for fine pearls. This merchant is unsatisfied by the gold and the riches and the jewels he already has in his possession. This merchant may even have other lesser pearls in his or her possession. But what he truly desires is that one fine pearl. Not some ordinary pearl, but an extremely beautiful and precious pearl. Now in our day of fake pearl necklaces and whatever, pearls have not, they're not quite as, uh, like, you know, people want diamonds these days, right? But in this day, it was all about the pearls. In this day, searching for fine pearls was a dangerous activity because you had to dive into the ocean to find the, what is it, oysters? Is it oysters? Yeah? If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Some sort of shelled, clammy thing that has the, the pearl in it. And a number of people drowned in the process of searching for these pearls. And so for this reason, pearls in general were quite, quite rare but a pearl that was unrivaled in beauty that was even rarer. Pearls in this day were the most highly sought-after gem that anyone could get their hands on. And the Apostle John kind of reveals this to us as he looks to the New Jerusalem. He's shown the New Jerusalem, and he speaks about the gates in the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation 21, 21, he said this, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. These were extreme treasures. And so this parabolic merchant, the merchant in the parable, he searched high and he searched low for the perfect pearl. And upon finding that perfect pearl, upon finding that pearl so rare and so valuable, this merchant went and sold everything he had to possess it, to buy it and possess it. All of his lesser pearls, all of his other gems, all of his possessions, he auctioned them off, he traded them in, he sold them so that he could have this one pearl, saying, here it is at last! The pearl I've been searching for! See, others that aren't like this merchant, they might be satisfied with regular pearls and lesser gems. And still others might see pearls being cast out to them and they, they, they trample on them like swine. But this merchant does everything he can to get the pearl for himself. In like manner, some of us might be satisfied by the lesser pearls of the world. We might be satisfied by the lies of the enemy and wicked imposters and false religion and self-idolatry. We might buy into truths that are, or, or statements that we take as truth that are given to us by the world that in no way represent truth. But if you are like this merchant, truly searching for truth, and I mean real truth, I mean tr- 
precious truth. I mean delightful truth that will carry you on into eternity. Let me introduce you to him. His name is Jesus. And he is worth divesting yourself of everything to lay hold of him. So I want you to just, in closing, think about your own life. Who is it or what is it at this moment in your life that holds supreme value? Where is your treasure of treasures? Where is the treasure for which if you are called upon, you will give up absolutely everything else? You will sell all of your possessions so that you might hold on to this treasure. Is it your money? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your safety, your security? Is it your politics? Is it your comforts? Because let me tell you, in comparison to Jesus, the great treasure, the fine pearl, all of these are as nothing. And if you said anything other than Jesus, you are an idolater. And you must repent of that most wicked sin, that most wicked violation of the very first commandment. Hear and believe what Jesus told his disciples here on this day. Hear and believe what Jesus is telling us here in this text this morning, that gaining him is worth the loss of every single earthly person and possession, that he is the great joy and delight and treasure of the human soul. So, four parables. Speaking to the nature of the kingdom of heaven. The first two set out for us this most comforting truth. The kingdom's advance, the kingdom's permeation into the world cannot, will not be halted, thwarted, or hindered. The kingdom will press and move forward even when anything and everything seems to say otherwise. And so you, fellow believer, remember that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven hidden in three measures of flour. And while its advancement might be imperceptible and maybe even hidden from your sight, it is performing its function of leavening. And not only is the kingdom of heaven advancing, but entry into the kingdom, knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior, being forgiven of your sins by grace through faith in Him, and given the gift of eternal life, being found in Him, and as a result, gaining entry into the kingdom is a privilege, is a treasure so great, a treasure of such surpassing worth that like Paul, we must be prepared to suffer the loss of all earthly things, and even count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you for speaking these parables and these words of truth. And I pray that for all with ears to hear and with eyes to see this morning, that you would be working in all of us to both encourage us by the reality of your kingdom's advance regardless of all the forces of the world arrayed against it. And I pray that you would exhort us to see that entrance and citizenship in that kingdom as the treasure for which we give up all things to lay hold of it. I pray for all of us who truly do love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning that you would be comforting and encouraging us by these words. And I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ who may not be citizens of the kingdom that your Holy Spirit would be convicting them of sin and the necessity for the righteousness that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his wonderful name. Amen.